Disputation Zusch, The Magicians of the Mountains. Is a podcast series about an annual conference scheme gathering scholars, writers, artists and scientists for a weekend of conversations and lectures in the Alpine Mountains. In 1929, the Davos Disputation takes place. Actually, this was invented to reinvent the tourism industry in the region, to bring youngsters, it as students, to where Martin Heidegger shared his decisively modern emotional approach, while Ernst Cassirer's educated incarnation of the established Bildungsbürgertum, a concept so specifically German it didn't even made it into translation, um, was clearly considered out of fashion. This debate became seminal only years later, after millions of deaths had sharpened the eyes of the audience for the initial sideline of the encounter, that Kassira was Jewish and Heidegger had later on declared his sympathy for National Socialism. This year's Disputations takes this encounter in Davos, this continental divide, as Peter Gordon called it, or Weggabelung der Philosophie, so a crossroads of philosophy, as per Henning Ritter, as a starting point. 90 years ahead in Sush, 40 minutes away from Davos, with radical movements on the rise, once again in times of disorientation and disillusion, we are repeating the question that led the historical debate, was ist der Mensch? What is it to be human? Disputation Sush from the beginning has been a multidisciplinary endeavor, bringing together scholars and artists, philosophers and authors, neuroscientists and historians, thinkers who will be asking questions and counter questions circling around the possibilities for universal truth versus a relative view of human temporality and finitude. Rational thinking and the notion of man as symbolic animals, creating a universe of symbolic meanings versus our being in the world, perceiving the world via our relationship to time. This vast theme is broken down into several more specific discourses concerning especially the relationship of philosophy, politics, art and literature. Between Kassira's Ausdrucksraum, Darstellungsraum, Bedeutungsraum, so that is room for expression, representation, meaning, and Heidegger's mental state of fear as a central point for existence, tentative explorations into the role of humanities and art shall lead to an exchange of potentially contradicting but still complementary interpretations and explanations of the world we inhabit. So let us contemplate and dare to dispute, agree and agree to disagree, infused, enchanted, and potentially infuriated by the experience of these tall, grandiose mountains around us, these massive presences of time, accountants from the past whose shriveled skin is telling tales, a unique scenery for some unique ideas to be formulated by us in a mix of humbleness and exhilaration. Someone called it a pleasant sense of horror that was induced by these Alpine fellows. Jean-Jacques Rousseau referred to the giddiness that he greatly enjoyed, quote, provided that I'm safely placed, quote end. Sush is a safe place, a vessel for ideas. Let us treat ideas as suggestions rather than blueprints, and rather than seeking for answers, let's properly specify the questions in a first step. Episode four, Pearls of Wisdom. So philosophy, in its earlier incarnation as religion and art, rose up from the same corner of the cave our ancestors inhabited 
And I sometimes think about Lascaux uh, 17,000 years ago, what kind of words were being spoken as people were carrying out these incredible paintings? What was the grammar they were using? Uh, what kind of verbs? What kind of adjectives? And how did symbolic language actually, how was it created? How, how did it develop? I'm very interested because I work within images about, you know, is my image production ahead of my ability to describe it, or is it all kind of based within the language that I'm using as a preamble before I begin? I'm very interested in how the breath carries meaning and intention, how a scream uh, becomes a note of joy or a note of horror. And now it seemed to me that the question between the Kassirer's sort of uh, rational Kantian approach of uh, describing the world and being able to imagine the world versus the Heideggerian uh, situation was incredibly close to characters that I had uh, written into the narrative of, uh, of the book that I've been working on. The book is set in the Middle East in the 1950s. 1953 was an incredibly important year because it was the year that Mossadegh was overthrown in Iran uh, and that the Middle East that might have had a sort of interesting version of socialism became what it is now, a ground for proxy wars and a place where religion, certain extreme forms of religion, have replaced uh, a political thinking. Um, within the narrative of the book, I have an architect uh, who is this sort of Kantian dilettante. Then I have a woman who's a sculptor who, the way she's developed, seems to be a bit of a Eva Hesse avant la lettre. She's sort of working in Paris. She's working with very interesting materials. She's working with the amorphous. She's reading Lacan. She's very interested in what's lurking at the back. And, and what she might be able to summon by kind of like pummeling lumps of clay and sticking glass and old magazines and stuff like that inside it. So they get together. He steals all her best ideas, as often happens, but uh, he's got a sort of a job to rebuild a city. Uh, but he feels that um, one of the problems is uh, that the language that he has to use, is it possible to create new terminologies, to actually build a new language, put languages together, take core concepts and build on them so that they, they become sort of in use, so sort of terms that are locked up inside can't, can be activated to become like an architectonic building block. So this premise of the book is about a man who's an architect who wants to do that. He can only do that by having a, and it's, it's not a love story, uh, but they have this very strong intellectual friendship with this woman who has a kind of approach to the amorphous and to the subconscious uh, which gives form, and she insists to him that only form, you need form or, or you need the amorphous to throw over the armature of thinking to create the world. He's born in a place called Khwapistan. Now, you, you're probably wondering, wait a minute, this guy's talking about Arabic and all this kind of stuff. What's going on? Is he allowed to do that? I've sort of spent a lot of years wandering within language, uh, where I come from in Glasgow, there's a big Urdu-speaking, Arabic-speaking community. So I've spent about 30 years kind of learning to, to kind of be a hybrid amongst a, a tribe of hybrids in a sort of post-colonial context. So I'm sort of shot through with the results of, of, of the end of colonialism. Uh, and, and I live in an area where 
there's a hybrid language that seems to be blossoming. And I sort of actively encourage it uh, by mixing Urdu with English and Arabic with English. So I'm going to read you now a section where uh, the architect remembers being inside his grandfather's library and climbing along these kind of shelves and shelves of books inside this labyrinthine room. And, uh, and so here we go. I locked myself inside the library and studied the perils of wisdom in conjunction with Kant's critique of judgment, the third critique. These two books had accompanied me as ciphers since my earliest mountaineering adventures up and down the shelves, alleyways, and twisting labyrinth of my grandfather's library. This book, the Fusus al-Hakam, more widely known as the Pearls of Wisdom, had been read to me in Arabic by my grandfather. The book, written in the 12th century, is a mystical interpretation of human perception of their qualities and archetypes and sensation encoded inside the religious texts and embodied by the prophets of the great monotheistic religions. The constant reference to God troubled my grandfather's atheistic mind, bending it into spiritual contortions. But there were some passages he read again and again. For example, man is to God that which the pupil is to the eye, the insan al-en, the man in the eye. In contemplating him, we contemplate ourselves. And in contemplating ourselves, he contemplates himself. So in contemplating him, we contemplate ourselves. And in contemplating ourselves, he contemplates himself. And although we are obviously numerous as to individuals and types, we are united, it is true, in a single and essential reality. But there exists nonetheless a distinction between individuals, without which, moreover, there would be no multiplicity and unity. Each prophet is an immediate determination of the eternal word, which is the primordial enunciation of God. The receptacle, that is to say, the heart of man, or more exactly, his essential and integral being, is itself a divine possibility. It is this permanent and informal possibility, the archetype, which most immediately receives the divine light. And so he spends time reading Ibn Arabi, but then returns to Kant. And for him, most importantly, it's not the first critique, which people often say is the most important one. It's the third critique, which is criticized, although I think Hegel said it was the best one. It was one he preferred. That's what I heard. In any case, so to Kant. And this is also kind of funny because he's climbing in the library, he falls down and the book lands on top of him at a page. And that's how he begins. It's, it's one of these, you know, man soll den Zufall für würdig halten über sein Schicksal zu entscheiden number where he just kind of like, it lands on him and that's how he makes his start. Kant's critique of judgment had crashed down on top of me when I'd used it as a foothold of the library to climb up to a shelf containing my grandfather's collection of erotic postcards. This climb involved a twisting maneuver that caused a broken wrist when a massive tome of all three critiques in both English and German fell down on top of me as I fell from my precarious fifth-story perch. I was pinned down by the page introducing the subjective purposiveness, the subjective Zweckmäßigkeit. 
I took great pains while recovering from the accident to make notes in both languages, English and German, with footnotes in Persian. I listed the main concept words, recopied what appeared to be key sentences, but still an understanding of it escaped me. I decided to draw the ideas out and assemble them as three-dimensional structures, which I refined over several weeks till they began to resemble architectural forms. Now remember, this guy is an architect, so he's kind of trying to sort of draw the juice out of what he's reading. A recurrent unit was an inverted trapezoid whose roof was a parallelogram, which I annotated as the subjective purposiveness or the subjective zweckmäßigkeit. This parallelogram was anchored by delicate threads to a floor of a similar shape and dimension labeled objective purposiveness. The entire structure stood on top of a circular daze labeled supersensible basis. So in this manner, I navigated the concepts of truth, freedom, judgment, morality, beauty, as I understood them in Kant. Each major concept became a structure, and in due course, I had generated a set of model buildings that grew into a small town. I pondered the empty space in the library through which I had fallen. The gap between the bookcases was a shoulder width apart. Was this gulf a physical manifestation of the space that separated the domain of the concept of nature, the sensible, from the domain of the concept of freedom, the supersensible? Was it the gap between languages that exists in the mind of a translator? I endlessly threw myself across it going from language to language, somehow containing or holding on to an essence that detached itself from the source and floated alongside me in this middle territory. Ideas propelled me through the library, giving me directions and purpose, falling, crouching, hanging. The physical experience of passing through spaces as they narrowed, expanded, forced one to crouch, generated bodily sensations, forms of desire, positions that felt sensual. It seemed that at points and in certain positions, the body was ahead of the mind. And I wondered if this was a form of pure animalism that intermittently held sway over the thinking self. The Sufis talk of the blaming and reproving self and the commanding self, the former having the role of taming the latter, which was comprised of the bodily appetites. Ought one to have a moral objection to sensations that seem to emerge from the heart of one's being? Was language the root of the separation between the thinking head and the moving body. I wrote a brief text on the similarities of the words sitting and shitting, examined the taboos of speaking certain words and made drawings of chairs that underlined the connection between them. Although happy to sit at the feet of the great Western thinkers, I continually sought to integrate elements from the East to Arabize Kant and make an East of the Enlightenment. And it was after meeting the sculptor Gohar Said, from whom I would steal eventually my best ideas, that she and I contemplated the possibility of making a new language. I had the theory, but she had the forms. A dispute about the merits of the geometric over the amorphous ensued. Which was the vessel and which was the content? Did the amorphous flow over the edges of a geometric armature? Or was the amorphous akin to a truth in form that was only ever visible when pinned down by the imposition of a geometric framing. We made experiments with materials and Said trawled her own memory for playful recollections that might be possible ways of thinking. I sought out a vocabulary to describe this new sense of words. 
world. Key to all of this was the phenomenon of the zwicket. The word zwicket was invented by me. The purpose of this new lexicon was to articulate the meeting of a psychoanalytical approach to architectonics and Eastern philosophy. The critique of judgment brought me to subject of purposiveness, which struck me as thoroughly in tune with the kind of precognitive approach to form that underlaid the models made out of pastry dough that Gohar was producing in response to my geometric things. We longed to dispense with the inadequate terminology derived from Latin and Greek. We wished to hear new and sophisticated ideas ring out with a kind of Semitic clang that would steal back from the West what we perceived as their monopoly on the right to articulate the modern world. Zweckmäßigkeit, Kant's own words for purposiveness, was compressed into an acronym, Zwickert. This supplied a vowelless triconsonantal root, so essential to vocabulary building in Hebrew and Arabic, that allowed concepts to extend. Just like as in Arabic, the root KTB, katab, can be adapted to encompass the notion of book, kitab, writing, kataba, libraries, maktub, and offices, maktaba, so too I extended zvikat by changing the vowel emphasis and adding pre and suffixes. And here it goes, it occurred to us we needed a language of measurement that could articulate the response of the bodies and the subconscious to these spaces we were developing. If we took the sloping walls of the Zwickett Pavilion we planned on the corner of Nasruddin and Freud Avenue, our main concern was amplifying a potential for reverie under these great, sagging, sloping forms. We began with Zwickett and then Zwickit, the effect of amorphous sloping forms on peripheral vision, or muskat, the readiness to think creatively in the amorphous structures. And best of all, mazakut, the potential for erotic reverie as brought on by the sensuous undulations of the walls. When I was reading and rereading Walter Benjamin's The Illuminations, there is this introduction by Hannah Arendt, and she talks, she refers to La Crise des Verts, the crisis in poetry of Mallarmé, uh, and in the whole sort of business of the deficiency of language. So I just wanted to read an English translation of that, and, and that's my segue into saying that somehow the voice and the sort of the stretching of the vowels and the plaintive cry uh, somehow makes up for all, all that these words I'm saying right now can never do. So, so, so this is, this is Mallarmé. Languages are imperfect in that although there are many, the supreme one is lacking. Thinking is to write without accessories or whispering. But since the immortal word is still tacit, since the immortal word is still tacit, the diversity of tongues on the earth keeps everyone from uttering the word, which would otherwise, in one unique rendering, be truth itself in its substance. But if this were the case, we must realize poetry would not exist. So philosophically, verse makes up for what languages lack, completely superior 
as it is. I also wanted to say, uh, Alexandra, when I was re reading your text, and it was two people, I think they meet on a train. Doesn't it say they meet on a train? Yeah, so I thought of this, okay? <clears throat> okay. It's just a conversation Beside a railway station between two strangers who both have missed a train. All the signs are broken, from speakers nothing spoken, and just this wooden shelter to keep them from the rain. There's holes inside the ceiling And all the paint is peeling But up there in the rafters A spider busy weaving Her silk threads grasp the, the rain and light As pearls of wisdom sparkling bright While down below still nothing said The silence weighs them down like lead Shuf hadi an kaput Shuf hadi fusus al-hikam Al-wahidu fil katria Al-katria fil wahidu Shuf hadi an kaput Shuf hadi fusus al-hikam Al-wahidu fil kathra Al-kathra fil wahidu My brother asks why My sister quietly replies I weave a tale, a silver veil To shield the singing of the cradle From the grave Anna fnain Anna ezat kalam arabi Al-wahidu fil kathra Al-kathra fil wahidu A ticking clock upon the wall Her heart pounds when her number's called The dice will roll and she will know If they can stay or they must go A stony face says two more years She heaves a sigh and lets her tears Land joyfully on infant cheeks that can't yet say why mothers weep. Shuf hadi an kabut, shuf hadi fusus al hikam, al wahidu fil kathra, al kathra fil wahidu. Shuf hadi an kabut, shuf hadi fusus al hikam, al wahidu fil kathra, al kathra fil wahidu. 
Lost souls, lie still. Anka Boot is coming soon. She will to cover you with silver threads behind the clocks and under beds to hold the rain in silver beads like thoughts transformed into deeds to fill the air with fragrant flowers and veil the eyes from dying hours and bring the arts to hopeless times and bring the arts to hopeless times. The spider up there is weaving on and doesn't care. Behold the graves upon her stave, all single notes that seem to float. The yous and me's in history and purpose still a mystery. She holds the world and all its plans as crossroads in her silver strands. Shuvhadi ankabut, shuvhadi fusus al hikam, al wahdu fil kathria, al kathria fil wahdu. Disputation Sush is hosted by ArtStations Foundation CH and Grazina Kulczyk. It is chaired by Mareike Dittmer. Speakers at Disputation 2019 were Alexandra Mir, Timotheus Vermollen, Tadeusz Slavek, Elisabeth Bronfen, Markus Steinweg, Jörg Heiser and Mark Sedler. Editing and Sound Design, Elena Caesar. The Magicians of the Mountains is produced by Museum Sush, ArtStations Foundation CH. More information can be found online at museumsush.ch.